Well, we had another uh, recording problem this morning with uh, batteries failing, so I'm just going to re-record the intro to the message, and then at the end of this I will transition it back into uh, the recording from this morning. So we're in this summer series in the Psalms, it's called uh, God is Our... Dot, dot, dot. And we're thinking about how God is... Uh, God is our fortress, or, or God is our everything. Last week was fortress. This week, God is our everything. And we're thinking about it as we engage with Psalms, because Psalms, an amazing thing, as we thought about last week, Psalms are really people's, a lot of people's favorite Bible texts, but not typically until they get older. It seems like life has to hit you hard before the Psalms become dear to you. But once life hits, once you go through some of the trials in life, Psalms start to become very, very precious. So last week we were thinking about Psalm 46, a psalm uh, written in the context of massive cataclysmic global change, which really was focused on a military threat, having the enemies encamped around ready to attack and in the context of war and everything is shifting and everything's changing. God is our fortress and we're able to find our security and our peace in him. And I suppose, really, Psalm 46 does feel quite relevant with some of the things that are going on in the world, Uh, although right now we're not really feeling the full force of it. But if we did, if we were to be caught up in conflict, and if we were to feel our own lives in imminent danger, I suspect we would all be pushed together, pushed towards each other, and we would find ourselves looking at Psalm 46 with hearts wide open. This morning we're looking at Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is very different than Psalm 46. This is a psalm that's written in a time when there isn't a great threat, when there isn't something on the outside forcing us toward each other and toward God. It's written during a time of peace, during a time of ease. And actually, one of the things that I appreciate about Psalm 73, this really is one of my favorite psalms, I really appreciate the fact that in Psalm 73, the writer writes with a level of honesty and a vulnerability that is absolutely wonderful uh, for us to hear. He's actually a worship leader. His name was Asaph. He was a worship leader. If you can imagine someone playing their guitar uh, in front of the worshippers in the temple, that's a little bit wrong on several levels. But essentially, that's what Asaph was. He was the uh, Israeli worship leader. And so he would speak, he would pre, uh, sorry, he would sing, and, and the people would sing, and And here he is having a real struggle, a time of massive inner churning and turmoil. And he reveals that in this psalm. And I appreciate that because that's kind of where we're at. We sit here on a Sunday morning, we look around, and I'm sure that you may be thinking this, that other people have got it all together. But I'm the only one that's struggling. It's easy to look at the leaders and think, oh, they've got it all together, but I'm the only one that's struggling. As we sat and met and talked about this message this, uh, earlier this week, uh, all of us really wanted to be clear. We struggle. We have these inner churnings, inner turmoils in our lives too. Uh, and uh, the people that we, we may look to both within the church and beyond the church, they struggle. You know, Some of the big names, Francis Chan or Andy Stanley or John Piper, these are people that may be great preachers, but they don't have it all together. None of us are perfect. And so Psalm 73, as we get into this psalm, it speaks to us because it speaks of a situation where a worship leader is struggling. He's really, really struggling. Uh, And in this particular case, it's as he looks at 
people around him, as he looks and sees what people are going through, he finds himself drawn uh, away from God and drawn towards something else. So, we want to be a community here at Trinity Chippenham, a community really marked by authenticity and grace. That means we're people who struggle and who are willing to be engaging uh, to talk with one another about that. And so let's look at Psalm 73 and see what it has to say to us in the context of living our lives, wanting to love God and delight in God, and yet struggling with the inner turmoil that comes from the temptations and the fears and the doubts and the difficulties that we face. So here's the plan. Basically, we're going to walk our way through the psalm. Uh, It's fairly long, so we'll take it chunk by chunk. We'll make sure we understand what it means. More than that, I want us to really feel it, to feel the force, because that's the way psalms work. We need to feel what it's saying. And then at the end, as I wrap up the message, I'm going to go back and read through the whole psalm so that we can have the whole thing wash over us and do its work in us. So that's the plan. Let's turn to Psalm 73. And at this point, I'm handing back or transferring back to the recording from this morning. Okay, so Psalm 73. Uh, if you have a Bible, it's in it, somewhere in the middle. And uh, we've also got it on the screen uh, so you can follow along. So just look at the first three verses. This is uh, Asaph, a Psalm of Asaph, worship leader, like I said. And this is what he would declare on a Sabbath in a good old worship service back in the day. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And everyone would say, Amen, that's a good word, Asaph. And they'd all get excited and sing the Truly God is Good to Israel chorus, you know. But then he says, verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That was his problem. He was letting his heart and his gaze focus on the other side. He was looking at kind of the world, the people who said, we don't care about God and we're not going to live for him. We're going to live for ourselves. He was looking at that and he was finding himself in a very precarious place. It was like he was walking along the edge of a cliff and he was so close to the edge that when the gravel kind of slipped, he could feel like his his weight was going. He was that close to, to going over to the other side. Just because he was gazing at, looking on and seeing the prosperity of the wicked. Now, imagine in our context today, any uh, waiting room, almost any waiting room that I've been in typically will have three types of magazines. Right? They will have the uh, kind of trashy celebrity tabloid magazines, you know, the ones that are usually being looked at a lot. And then there's typically uh, car magazines. And then often, depending on the kind of, you know, where you're waiting, but then you'll often have that kind of home and country garden type magazine that some of you love. And, and I don't, but that's okay. And, and you, you know, you sit there and you think, oh, well, I'm going to avoid the trashy one. But actually, what are all three doing to us? You sit there for half an hour dwelling on uh, celebrities and their latest conquests and the latest partner that they have and the uh, very in-your-face beauty of that. It's, it's kind of trying to draw you in, isn't it? Trying to make you want something like that yourself, a bit more of an adventure. Okay, we don't want to go there, so let's go to the car magazines. They're safe, aren't they? Because we all really could do with a nice... Porsche, Ferrari, Lamborghini. I mean, they don't tend to make a big deal out of a Ford car, do they? 
those magazines, they tend to give you the, the best and the most expensive. And, uh, and you've avoided drooling over the, the celebrity magazine. And instead, you find yourself drooling over the car magazine. And I don't get the last one, but some of you do. The home and country gardens type magazines. Look at how beautiful this kitchen is. Look at this gorgeous layout of a living room. Wouldn't it be nice to have roses like this? Now, I don't know what the attraction is, but I understand that for some, that magazine, it's bordering on pornographic. It's so enticing. It's so drawing you in. And there you are in a waiting room and everything you're looking at, unless, of course, you've got your phone with Kindle and Bible on it, but everything you're looking at in the waiting room is all drawing you in. And too much of that, too much dwelling on those things, whether it's the trashy stuff or the classy stuff, we find our hearts being drawn, don't we? We find ourselves kind of longing for and wishing and wondering and maybe plotting and dreaming about what we could do, how we could maybe just about afford such and such. And it's an enticing, tempting thing, and that's exactly what Asaph was feeling. As he looked around him and he saw the people who said, get stuff to God, we don't care about you, we're going to live for ourselves, he's looking at them and saying, their lives are easy, and I'm tempted to join them. And so he goes on to describe it from verse 4. He says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. And then he gets more overt in their antagonism to God. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. He's struggling. He's looking at them and saying, look, they smoke 40 a day and they're healthy into their 80s. They eat uh, cream cake after cream cake, and they never have a heart problem. They don't pay their taxes. They cheat on everything they're doing, and yet they're driving cars that I can only dream of driving. Uh, and they're cheating in the, in the work world, and they're lying to one another, and they're doing everything against God that they possibly can, and their lives are nice and easy. Do we ever kind of feel that way? You ever look at people and go, oh, they don't struggle. And then what makes it worse is they put on a seminar, a how to be a richer, better, happier you seminar. And by the way, to attend the seminar, you have to pay a thousand pounds. And what happens? People flock to it. Everyone goes to the seminar and pays the money and they get rich and get this kind of trashy advice. And if you look carefully, you'll even find Christians in those crowds, eager and hungry for some teaching that is completely empty of any value. And you turn back to church and say, look, we've given the best that we can and, and people, we don't charge a thing and people don't come. And you, you can look at that and you can dwell on that and if you're not careful, you can find yourself pulled in by that. And that's exactly where Asaph was. And so in verse 13, as he reflects on that, he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I have been stricken, rebuked every morning. 
If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You can almost feel the, the pain in his heart, can't you, as he, as he writes that? That, that he's, he's feeling as he looks at the world and then looks at his own life and just the struggles that he goes through and the difficulties and the limited resources and so on. He's looking at the rich neighbors and he's looking at himself and he's, he's kind of saying, well, to be honest, it kind of feels like I've wasted my time. What's the point of, of living a pure life for God? What's the point of, of honoring him when, when all I go through is trouble and difficulty and everyone who says God doesn't matter lives this life of ease? It's this wearisome task to him. It's, I just imagine him kind of walking through the streets of Jerusalem, just kind of kicking stones, you know? Just maybe a Coke can, obviously there wasn't one, but just kicking a Coke can aimlessly along as he's really having this internal struggle because verse 15, he says, if I spoke this out, what a massive mess I would make. You know, that's one of the unique struggles of Christian leaders. When you get to stand up front in front of others and be seen by others to, to be someone who's sort of got it together, the danger is that you never feel free to open up and say, I'm struggling. I've got doubts. I've got fears. I have temptation that grips me. I have uh, ideas that come into my heart and I can't seem to shake them, but we're not allowed to say that. We were talking the other morning as the, the startup team uh, looking at this message just saying, boy, we really want to make sure people know that we struggle, that we don't have it all together. And we need to remember that the people we look up to within this church and outside in other places, maybe famous preachers, that they struggle too. I don't know who you like listening to, Francis Chan or Andy Stanley or John Piper, whoever it is, they have inner struggle. They have this internal kind of churning at times that is so intense and it's easy for us to look at others and say, they've got it together. I'm the one that's struggling. And Asaph kind of pulls back the curtains and says, hey, look, I'm a worship leader. And I struggled. I almost went to the other side. I almost slipped over. This creates a bit of a tension for us. Because actually, in one sense, every one of us, and we don't realize this, but every one of us is being watched by others. It's not just the people that come up front, worship or preaching or whatever. Every one of us, there are other people in the church. Maybe you're uh, 17, you say, oh, no one's looking at me. Well, I get, tell you what, the 13-year-olds, the 12-year-olds, the 8-year-olds are looking at you. Or you might say, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm not even married yet. I'm still in my 20s. You know, I'm, I haven't got it all together, but the teens are watching. And actually, the reality is that every one of us, whether we're leading a ministry or speaking in life group for 30 seconds, any time we, we do anything in church, there, there's people watching. And the reality is that if, if we are, are having this internal struggle, we've got to realize that the temptation to give up on God, the temptation to make a crazy move, is a temptation to do damage to others. Any one of us blows it, it's going to leave a mark on other people. It's going to tarnish. It's going to maybe even damage or destroy the faith. And you re look at that and you go, oh my goodness, this is massive. And in one sense, I want to just present that and say, you know what? We've got to really wrestle with that. We've got to be realistic about that. Because in those moments where we're tempted to do something absolutely stupid, 
Those are the moments when the last thing we'll think about is other people. Oh, no one will know. I'm away from home. I'm in a hotel. It's just me. No one will know. They will. And it will do damage. And there are moments where we need to think to ourselves, hang on a second. Who is it that will be damaged by this? Spouse, children, friends, people that look up to me in some way, family. Who's going to be damaged if I make a crazy move on one of my older phones back in the day when it had a small screen? It it came up and I kind of changed the opening text because I think it said something like, welcome to something. I, I don't care about that. So I changed it to walk worthy of JC, Mel, and I listed my children on there. Just to remind me, when I turn my phone on, yeah, these are people that are going to be marked if I do something stupid. And so on the one hand, we have this tension of, you know, if we just kind of reveal crazy sin struggles or whatever that we could do damage. But is that saying, therefore, we should keep it all secret? Is that saying that we're condemned to live a life of secrecy and hiding behind a mask? I don't think that's what Asaph's saying here at all. What he's saying is, I'm a worship leader, and I'm really struggling, and I'm really tempted, and if I follow through and do that and speak that out with my life, then I'm going to do massive damage to people. But this is a serious situation, and it needs to be taken care of. We'll see how he takes care of it in a minute, but I just want to make sure we don't walk forward with a misunderstanding that the way to take care of inner turmoil and inner struggle is to keep it secret and to try to handle it on our own. That's very, very dangerous. Asaph isn't addressing this issue in this psalm, but Bible-wide, there is a, a very clear message that you should not be, I should not be, facing struggles alone. We need to walk in the light with one another. I remember some years ago hearing a guy uh, at um, a conference, and, and he, he had really on a major scale, messed up. Uh, And miraculously, his marriage had been restored and and, and somehow, you know, he was back to walking with the Lord again. But I mean, he really had blown it apart, big style. And he, I remember the one thing he said more than anything else, and, and some of you have heard me say this already. He said, the power... With, with, with pornography, with lust, with all the stuff that he was struggling with, the power is in the secret. And as long as you think, I can handle this, I can deal with this, I'm just going to, me and God, we're just going to get this sorted, it will never be broken. You'll never get away from the grip of that because the power is in the secret. You need to find someone and come into the light and, and say, look, I'm struggling. Please, would you walk with me and help me? I mean, just remember that. It's so powerful. The power is in the secret. And so please don't misunderstand Psalm 73. When Asaph says, if I had spoken this out, then I would have done all sorts of damage, does not mean let's keep things private. It means let's not go there and blow it. But in order to not go there and blow it, in order not to make a complete mess, we need to be open with one another. Just earlier... Uh, In the summer, we had three sessions uh, for the the men where we thought about all these issues of purity and lust and so on. And it was such a valuable time just to be in a conversation with other people that say, yeah, I struggle. It's not easy for me. And and here's some of the things I do. And, you know, here's some of the things that help me. and, And it was a really valuable time just not to solve anything, but just to introduce a conversation. So that those of us who were there, I think, feel safe to go to each other now and say, hey, I'm I'm struggling. And not to feel like I'm going to be the only person ever to struggle with this, but to know that there's others that understand that. 
We need each other. And I want us, we want us, we all want us as a church to be a community that's marked by authenticity, by grace in the way that we interact with one another, that, that we can say to one another, hey, mask off, I'm struggling, and to have a response that's gracious and loving and kind and supportive and helpful. That the danger is if we keep things hidden, then we end up kind of coming to church with a mask on, our Sunday best and our Sunday mask, and it's lacking authenticity, and we can become the loneliest people on the planet, trying to keep up the image of Christians. Let's walk in the light. Let's be authentic. Let's be graciously reaching out and embracing and supporting one another. But let's get back to Asaph, because I want to see how did he end up not slipping? What is it that brought about the transformation in Asaph that means that this psalm is not only in the book of Psalms, it's really the center point of the entire book. It's really a a massive moment. And the moment comes right here in verse 17. He's there in verse 16 kind of kicking his coat can. And he's going through the streets and he's wrestling with it. What can I do if I said this, if I did that? I don't know about this. Why do they? But why don't I? And if they, why can't I? And look at him. And oh my goodness, what has she got now? And he's wrestling and he's struggling with this. Have I kept my hands pure? Have I lived for God in vain? Has it all been worthless? And he's kicking the can. And the can clatters against maybe a step, maybe a a gatepost and And he looks up and he sees that he's come to the very center of the city. There, right at the heart of the city, is a structure. And that structure changes everything. Look at verse 17. Verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Suddenly he's shifted. Suddenly his whole perspective is changed. Suddenly he's, he's recognizing God's in charge and people who shake their fist at God are in a very slippery place. They're in a very dangerous situation and they can have all the wealth and all the riches and all the marriages and all the, you know, all the things that this world has to offer. They can have all of that and it's going to be gone in a heartbeat because God's in charge and he's going to deal with it. Uh, suddenly his perspective is radically changed. Look at verse 21. He looks backwards and he says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. What a donkey. That's what he's saying. What a donkey I was. You ever said that about yourself? You don't have to admit it. You know, some things you can keep a little bit quiet. I've said it. I've, I've come to situations where in the moment it made all the sense in the world. And then after the fact, I'm looking back and going, oh, Pete, you fool. How in the world did you think that was good to do? It's amazing, isn't it? Our hearts are so capable of rationalizing. It's because our hearts are in charge. It's because we will always, always do what we want. And if you want to do something completely ridiculous, guess what? Your heart will convince you it makes all the sense in the world. Uh, And we can do crazy things. And and then we look back and we go, what? I wouldn't expect that logic out of a three-year-old, and yet I, what was I thinking? It's the way it is, isn't it? 
in those moments. And that's, that's a bit of a challenge to us because we could be sitting here this morning with this kind of sense that, well, actually, maybe this psalm is relevant for me because I'm struggling with a temptation. But, but it feels slightly distant because your heart is processing and telling you that it's fine and it makes sense and you're the exception and don't worry about such and such. And I know the Bible says that, but and it really isn't you know, going to fall out that way. God's going to be gracious. It doesn't matter you know, about this relationship. It doesn't matter about this habit. It doesn't matter about this place that I'm thinking of going. I can get away with it. Nobody will know. And your heart and your mind will rationalize and process. And maybe you're sitting here this morning going, hmm that's what's happening in me i'm justifying something as much as you can flash forward to beyond what you're contemplating and ask yourself this am i going to look back with clarity and say i was a donkey i was a fool to do what i did and to think the way i thought because if you're going to think that in the future don't do that now I was speaking with Melanie um, last night, and I said, uh, can you think of an example of, of this, I just, what I just described? She said, yeah, and she reminded me of someone, someone that we know, a really good friend who on summer had, had spent the summer working at this camp. Um, wasn't, I don't think it was a Christian camp, or, um, but at the end of the summer, she got in touch with Melanie and said, we need to talk. And they got together, and she said, I've spent the summer with this guy. He's not a Christian. We just really get on well, feel completely compatible. It, it just, it's, a, it's amazing how, how much we've connected. And I'm this close to starting a relationship with him. Please convince me why I shouldn't. And Melanie just laid it out for her and explained things to her. And praise the Lord, she turned back from that decision. Now we know her and her husband and their children and a wonderful family. But I wonder if sometimes she looks back and says, I was a donkey that summer came this close to destruction. What was I thinking? The the psalmist Asaph carries on. Verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, we heard that before, didn't we? Right back at the beginning. They are going to go their way, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. That's a powerful end. (laughs) There's there's heaven and actually heaven may be made with gold. It doesn't matter. The only thing I want in heaven is God. And there's this earth with, with all of its advertising and all of its offers and all of its temptations. There's nothing I desire besides God. He He's my everything. Now, how could a psalm start with a worship leader about to slip and and stumble and blow it and end with a worship leader celebrating, writing some of the best verses in the entire Bible? It's because he went into the sanctuary. So I want us just for a couple of minutes to think about that. What is the sanctuary and what is significance? The sanctuary was uh, originally a tent, a tabernacle. It was was this thing that... uh, 
when God called the Israelites out of Egypt and formed them into a nation, he said, okay, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And I'm going to give you a tangible uh, expression of the deepest desire of my heart, which is to dwell with you. So they were out in the wilderness, and uh, maybe you know that story. They were out there for 40 years, and during those years, there was this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire at night, and it was God's presence right there in the midst of his people. And so they'd left all the riches of Egypt, but they had the riches of God's presence wanting to be with them. It's an amazing thing about God, that he wants to be with his people. So when they came into the, uh, the land, uh, the prized possession that they brought with them was this tent called the tabernacle. It was, a, it was just a tent with several covers on from the outside. It was nothing impressive. But on the inside, there was this compartment, this section. And in that section, there was the, the Ark of the Covenant. And there were these angels uh, kind of looking down over the, 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 the top of the Ark of the Covenant. But the real treasure was the presence of God right there. It's, like the, it's called the Shekinah glory, this glowing uh, presence of God right in the midst of his people. And, and if you were in the wilderness or if you were in Israel and you loved God, you would have said, I don't care what they have in Alexandria. I don't care what they have in Chippenham. I'm not interested in the riches of this world, Paris, Milan, New York, and London. Forget it all. We've got the tabernacle. This is unique. This is God dwelling in our midst, giving us the, the perspective on life and reality that we need, giving us the privilege of worship, of response to a God who loves us and comes to us. And some years later, uh, they were in the land and, and King David had built his palace and he looked out at this tent and he said, oh, this tent is wrong. I mean, I, I'm in a palace. God's in a tent. I'm going to build God a palace. Anyway long story, but uh, he didn't get to build it. His son did. And Solomon, the son of David, built this temple. It was pretty impressive. But the really impressive thing was when it was finished, all these sacrifices, and then the presence of God came and filled the temple. So if you were walking through the streets of Jerusalem, whether it was a tent or a building, that structure represented the most glorious reality that you could possibly imagine, that the God who created everything loved his people so much that he wanted to dwell in their midst. And when Asaph went there, he suddenly saw clearly. It's like at the opticians. If you go to the opticians and they, they, they do the kind of the switches of the lenses, which is always quite an awkward moment, you know, and is it better first or second, first or second? Sometimes you can't tell and you feel thick, you know, but, but there's sometimes where they do something and suddenly you're like, oh my goodness, I can see clearly. Let's have a pair of those, please. <laughs> it's like that when you walk into the temple. Suddenly the fog and the confusion of this life gives way to total clarity that God is God, he's in charge, that people who shake their fists at him are going to pay. Ultimately, they can't get away with that, but he loves us and he dwells with us and he wants us to respond to him in worship. Wouldn't it be great if we today could have a temple? Somewhere we could go, where we could kick our Coke can when we're despairing and come in and get a complete change of perspective. Well, we do. And it's not in Jerusalem, thankfully. That would be a difficult journey. Dangerous place to be. Where's the temple today? You read through the New Testament several times. It tells us we are the temple. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
You know what that means? It means lots of things. But one of the things that means, it means that at any moment, in any place, in any struggle, you are right on the threshold of stepping into the presence of God and worshiping Him. You're right there, just simply lifting the eyes of your heart. You have the perspective that Asaph found walking into the sanctuary. That's a powerful thing. When you're in that moment and you're, you're kind of struggling, you go, oh, what am I thinking? I'm, I'm really starting to lean towards this bad decision. You don't have to f- make a long journey, thousands of miles and, and, and difficult flights. You just say, oh God, and you're right there. Because if you've trusted in Jesus and you receive the spirit when you become a Christian, the spirit of Christ dwells within us. Paul said, it's the hope of glory, Christ in you. It's right there. I remember uh, when I was going through uh, university. And uh, university was a place with all sorts of swirling tensions and difficulties and, and exams. And I, I kind of go into these exams. And the, the course I took meant that every exam was identical. Not the same questions. That would have been nice. But an identical format. Four, uh, sorry, three hours, four questions. Every single time. Three hours, four questions, at least six times every June. And I'd go into those, those exam halls and sit there with this pressure, this sense that I've got to get this right. I've got to do my best. I've got to try and get above what I deserve. You know, and I, if I don't, I'm never going to earn a penny. I'm, you know, I'm going to be condemned to whatever. And, and all these kind of thoughts swirling around and, and all the, the struggle of that. And, and I, I got into the habit based on this reality that, that I am in the presence of God because God dwells in me. I got into the habit of just taking a worship break in the midst of my exams. I couldn't lift my hands. That would have got me in trouble. I certainly couldn't sing. That would still get me in trouble in any context. But in my heart, I could stop and I could worship. And so I finish a a question and uh, the flesh wants to just keep going. Come on, drive on. Next question. No, hang on a second. Just close my eyes and and just take a minute. And I I had a a chorus that I've not heard it for years but I used to go through it in my heart and it was just a perfect chorus for a time like that. It it was something like, I lift my hands to the coming king, to the great I am, to you I sing, for you're the one who reigns within my heart and I will serve no foreign God or any other treasure. You're my heart's desire, spirit without measure and to your name I will raise my sacrifice. And I'd sing that through and say, Lord, I'm so glad you're here. Please help me keep my perspective straight. In the midst of this, not just this exam, but some of these people sitting around me are quite distracting. But Lord, I want to live for you. And some of those moments were so precious. Just as precious as visiting Israel, more so. Because I was in the presence of God. Because God dwells within, which means that I, you, we are a worship center. We are a sanctuary. And if the key, according to Psalm 73, if the key to having a clear perspective is to draw near to the God who wants to dwell with us, if that's the key to to moving from despair to delight, then it's a privilege that is ours every moment of every day as you're driving to work. As you see that poster and your heart is drawn to it. As you watch that television program, as you're having that conversation, where any moment... When you find yourself starting to feel your feet slipping and your heart being drawn in a different direction, remember, we are a worship center. We are the people in whom God's spirit dwells. 
And at any moment, all I need to do, and if I'm driving, I don't even need to close my eyes. In any moment, all I need to do is say, Abba. And I'm in the presence of God Almighty. A God who loves me and loves you so much. He wants to give you clear perspective. He wants to give you a sense of peace and assurance. He wants to give you strength for what you're facing. And he wants to keep you from slipping and going into a very messy situation. Let's just pause before we read Psalm 73 to close. Let's just think about where we're at, what the struggles are that we face. Maybe it is a very materialistic tension that that is gnawing at our hearts, that if only we could, then we could buy and we could own, and if only, and there's a struggle within. Maybe it's temptation to sin, to go after something that is obviously wrong, and yet at the moment there's a, there's a self-talk conversation going on inside that justifies and rationalizes and says, no, it's different in this case. Whatever it is, whatever the struggle, let's just pause and then we'll look at, or I'll read Psalm 73. We'll just let it wash over us. Feel the tension of Asaph with that inner turmoil and then feel with him the delight of having clarity that comes from knowing that God wants to dwell with us. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered. When I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. 
you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Father, we just want to say thank you that you are, you are a God who loves us so much that you want to dwell with us. We want to thank you that by your spirit, because of what Christ has done on the cross, we now can have your spirit dwelling within, within us, the Christ, the hope of glory in us. What a privilege. And Lord, I just pray for us as a church community that as we move forward, that you'd protect us from just the, the frightening ability that we have to explain away your guidance, to explain away why we should live close to you and to justify making decisions that really make no sense. Lord, would you protect us from that? Protect in this room every one of us from our hearts going astray after material wealth or going after other things that this world offers. Protect us, Lord, from going after things relationally that are not your design, that ultimately will only lead to mess. Lord, protect us from ourselves when we try to convince ourselves that something's okay in our case. And instead, make us a people who grow used to the privilege without ever becoming numb to it, but grow used to the privilege of being worship centers, of being able at any moment in the car, at work, at the coffee machine, uh, in the shower, any moment to just come straight into your presence, to celebrate your goodness, and to know that living close to you is everything that we need. Lord, we want you to be our everything. We want you to be our strength. We pray for your spirit to be at work within us. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.